Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Russ McCullough of the Gortney Institute, and I have with me today our resident graduate assistant, Jacob Michael, and our resident philosopher, Dr. Justin Clark. And we have a special guest from Washburn University on today that I'm going to let uh, Jacob introduce. Dr. David Price is an associate professor of marketing at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. He graduated from Washburn University with a BBA in management and marketing and received an MBA from Pittsburgh State University. He received his PhD in marketing from Griffith University in Queensland, Australia, and he's published and presented in academic articles in various national and international conferences and journals in the areas of entrepreneurship and marketing. During his professional career, he has worked in several positions as a new product marketing manager, national sales manager, and as a VP of sales and marketing for a startup company before returning to academia. All right. So uh, Australia, they seem to be kind of popular with entrepreneurship flavored degrees. Our, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Mary Lou DeWald, she got her degree kind of remotely uh, back probably 20 plus years ago with an Australian university then, and she was doing some entrepreneurship stuff. So David, nice to have you on the show today. Uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate you guys having me on. All right. Well, why don't you give us a little background on what you do and what you've been up to. And uh, we uh, kind of have a free-flowing program. So I like the entrepreneurship twist. Maybe you can, if you've got some research that you've been doing or other current event interests, uh, it's wide open for you. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you heard a little bit from the bio there that I started out in marketing and then I eventually became part of a startup and that's what got me interested in entrepreneurship. And even though uh, I had an MBA, I struggled with life in a, in a startup because all the business I was learning was really focused on large corporations. And yeah. my uh, they didn't teach us anything about starting your own business. And I, and I thought that was wrong. Starting out of a garage or something. They didn't yeah. cover They didn't yeah. have garage chapter, right? No, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it's amazing that you can take all those years of business classes and not cover it. So when I went back into academia, our startup didn't make it, by the way. So, right, we went about two or three years. Yeah. Went through a bunch of money. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately it ended. And so I was at that point, it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I had this crazy idea of going back and getting a PhD. And so I, I lifted up the wife and two young children and we moved back to Australia and came a full-time student again. So that wow. was a change. Wow. If, if, it, if it's not too painful for you, can you give us a little flavor of what your startup was, what, what you guys were trying to bring to market? Sure. Yeah. We had new technology in the construction industry. Okay. So uh, it wasn't my idea. It was a, it was a guy I met in um, MBA class. He was an engineer, and he had developed this new product that would automate finishing drywall. So if anybody oh, has wow. done that, the, yeah, you've got the I have, yeah. I was, yeah. I was a real estate developer and had my own construction company with, with some partners uh, over the years. And 
finishing drywall is a complete art form, actually. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, anybody can hang it and get the first coat of mud on there, but man, right. yeah. Yeah, and so this system would put the mud down and put the tape on. It would do the second, third coats. Wow. It would even spray on the drywall compound all in one machine. And it was automated so it would continue pumping to a tool which you could control remotely. Hmm. So we all thought we were going to be rich and have second houses in Maui and all that sort of jazz. <laughs> it didn't work out. And uh, so we went back to Australia and, and I got into PhD program, but I had this interest in entrepreneurship, even though my degree is in marketing, they really didn't have PhDs in entrepreneurship, but I, my passion, if you will, is entrepreneurship education. And so I wanted to bring that entrepreneurial teaching to university. And so when I, I came back, my wife, uh, she was from here, from Topeka, wanted to come back here, and I was fortunate enough to get on at Washburn in a marketing capacity, but I wanted to introduce this entrepreneurship twist. And so then about well, six, seven years ago, we decided to create a new major here at our university. So we have an entrepreneurship and innovation major. Oh. So that was one of my career goals, and we have that here now. And we hadn't had a new major at Washburn for 30 years. Ah. So um, that was a big accomplishment. <clears throat> I'm glad we did. And, and so now we've got I think about 30 or 40 students in the program. Do you have engineering there as well? I can't remember if Washburn has any sort of engineering program. Uh, we've got pre-engineering. Pre-engineering, okay. Yeah, because sometimes that, as you mentioned with your previous business partner, those engineers yeah. do tend to be at the, involved in a lot of different startups and innovations. Yeah, what we're, yeah, so, what we're trying to cultivate is an interest across campus for this cross-disciplinary approach where our business students can uh, mingle and share ideas with those students in sciences, uh, computers, information technology, and combine with each other to, to generate new ideas. One of our, one of our uh, student teams last year, we have a, an elevator pitch competition, which we started here. <clears throat> and uh, it's been very successful. We're in the middle of it now, and the finals is tomorrow night. But our winners from last year, uh, he had a team of five kids uh, with him. He was two business majors, but he also had uh, one student from computer sciences, another one from the biology department, and another one from somewhere else. And he had this nice mix of backgrounds on his, on his management team. And um, it's an interesting business. I'll just tell you real quick. These guys are uh, they're farming crickets. Right, and they're doing it farming in farming crickets. Yeah, yeah, they're growing them, cultivating, okay. harvesting them. Okay. They grow them to a certain size, and apparently this is all the rage. Then they, I think they use the word harvest. They harvest them, they kill them, and freeze them, <laughs> and they grind them up into dust. Uh huh. Dust is apparently has twenty times the protein of beef, and so it's fairly tasteless. And they can huh. sprinkle that on other products and get all the protein oh. benefits. Uh, then instead of using up and, and it's better for the environment, for example, uh, what cattle do to the environment and right. uh, land use and other things. So huh. on a cutting edge, and it's really interesting what they come up with. Yeah. So uh, I have a question for you, Dr. Price. I remember back in my undergrad taking entrepreneurial economics from Dr. Russ, actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, something that stuck with me is I left the class thinking that not everyone has the innate ability to be an entrepreneur. So do you think you have to be born with the entrepreneurial spirit to be able to find market opportunities? Or do you think that is something that you can teach? 
No, I, I think it's something you can teach. Uh, I view entrepreneurship as being on a continuum. So I, I think there's, say, 10% of the population that will always be entrepreneurs, have that entrepreneurial spirit, no matter what they do or what, where they end up, they'll end up chasing that dream. I also believe that the 10% at the other end of the continuum that really just doesn't want to, they just want a job. There's nothing wrong with that. And they're, they feel more comfortable and safe in that environment. I think there's a big chunk of people in between that could become more entrepreneurial if they had more tools, if they believed and that was shown some ways that they could be more entrepreneurial. And that could be, it's not just starting your own business, Jacob. That is being more entrepreneurial in a large corporation. Mm-hmm. Right? So, being an entrepreneur, they call it, right? And so, and honestly, that's where I've fallen myself. And, and here I am in a fairly safe environment, right? Tenured faculty. Yeah. But I can still chase a goal, right? And make change and, and be a change agent at a university, right? So, whether that's a new program, whether it's a new event, but I can do Whether it. that's the Gortney Institute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of the same thing here. The startup of this Gortney Institute that's uh, hosting this. And that's exactly right. It's kind of an intrapreneur. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I think there's a big group of people in there that want to do something extra. And that's really what employers are looking for as well. They want somebody to take a project and run with it. And if you feel more comfortable with, you know, your salary and with your benefits and knowing you're getting a paycheck, but you still want the challenge, uh, being entrepreneurial is a great way to go. And I find it more comfortable too. I mean, I enjoyed my time in the startup, but you mean there were times when we missed paychecks. There were times, most of the time, when I didn't know if we're going to be around next month or in the future. Yeah, That was hard to plan for, and that's not for everybody. Yeah, I think that's uh, one argument a student of mine did a paper on that's kind of interesting in regard to healthcare. And how much does our current system kind of hurt entrepreneurs getting started because they feel like they have to stay with their current job to keep their healthcare benefits or to, to keep covered. And maybe they have a preexisting condition of a spouse or something, and there's like no way they could afford it on the, on the private market. And it's a, it's a pretty compelling argument of a obstacle we face in the United States. On, on You're absolutely right. It's a big challenge for entrepreneurs in the U S I mean, uh, in Australia, there is a uh, government-sponsored health care. It's not something that people have to worry about. Um, you know, there are other environmental conditions that might affect it. But in the United States, the model that I see occurring is that one spouse has the full-time job, has the benefits, and the other spouse, doesn't matter whether it's husband or wife, they can take the chance. They can do the part-time job. They can take a, an opportunity or, or pursue an opportunity to start a business. Dr. Price, I had a question, and it might be a little bit inside baseball, but I think maybe in your answer to it, you could talk a little bit about more about uh, the teachability of entrepreneurship. So the question is, what differentiates an entrepreneurship major from just a general business major? And if you kind of explain what that difference is, maybe you could talk about to what degree you think entrepreneurship is teachable? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think those that take an entrepreneurship or undertake our degree program do have something in the back of their mind about doing something someday. I'm trying to think of the stat. I can't remember it right now, but uh, 
I think it was certainly with millennials, it was about 60 some percent would like to start their own business someday. And that was a quite a large percentage. And so I think people that take a degree in entrepreneurship, they oftentimes are not ready to start their business right out of school, right? They have student debt, they need a job, they need some experience in the workplace uh, in the first place. So they're thinking later on, I get some money behind me, I get kind of settled about where I want to be and what I want to do. Maybe their idea isn't refined enough yet. And they're thinking down the road, that's what I would like to do. And I'd like to have a few tools in my toolkit for when that time comes uh, that I'm ready to, to give it a shot. Whereas a general business major, I think, okay, uh, they are more inclined to look for a secure job. You know, as far as teaching, you know, we, we do a lot of different things. I teach the first class in the program called Creativity and Innovation. And what I try and do in that class, I try and unlearn my students. You know, they're, they're taught rules. They're taught linear thinking. They're taught, okay, here's a problem. Look at some solutions and find out the best answer. And it's not always that simple. Uh, so when we're looking at the creative process, we look for different types of thinking, changing your environment, uh, looking at the world in different ways and making different connections. And this is something that I normally don't get taught in a business class. So um, I really have to unteach them and uh, tell them to, at least at first, yeah. come up with creative ideas. And so that's a, that's a big shift for some of them. And some students really struggle with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I teach a class called Leadership of Creativity and Change, where the whole class is really built on how do you be a creative thinker? And so it kind of yeah. ties into some of those yeah, sorts of topics. Mm-hmm. Well, this looks like a good spot to, uh, to head towards our break. I got to tell one story before we jump into break, and then we'll be back with Dr. Price on some more topics. One area that I'd like to get into is um, kind of this idea of entrepreneurship versus management. Um, so sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to go start my own business and they get a franchise operation from McDonald's oh. or something. And, and so it's almost like they're managing more than the difference between coming up with the next Facebook or whatever, or the next way to drywall some in it, you know, so I, I'll <laughs> kind of look for your comments on that when we come back from the break. And I want to leave before break with my buddy, Chad Steenhook. Uh, he gave me a quote one time that I never forgot with, as far as whether you're born an entrepreneur or whether you're, you know, can be taught it. And, and his philosophy, he was born an entrepreneur. He said, and he, he struck out so many times, like he'd start little businesses and they'd break out. And he just said, you know, I'm like, Chad, how do you do it? You know, do you get discouraged? He's like, Russ, there's so many ways to make money in the world. I just have to find one of them. (laughs) So it was like this never, Never die attitude, and I, I think that's important with it. You need so, that. You yeah, definitely need yeah. that, yeah. All right, with that, we'll be back in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. 
young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org. Welcome back. We're here with uh, Dr. David Price and uh, having a conversation on entrepreneurship and can it be taught and whatnot. And uh, I was thinking how sometimes people treat entrepreneurs as people who own their own business or start their own business. And I, I think that's very distinct from uh, maybe the way economists, Jacob mentioned the class I teach is entrepreneurial economics. And we, we really look at kind of more of the external class. It's less of a how-to class, like how to become an entrepreneur, what things you should do, and, and rather the value of entrepreneurship to society and how yeah. that creative destruction process uh, leads to lower prices and better outcomes as, as the data has shown around the world where people can practice economic freedom more. And so I thought maybe we'd start off with uh, comments on you know those people who are starting their own business and maybe the idea of management versus entrepreneurship mm. or how, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, there's a lot of people, that 10% I was talking about, that just love the process of entrepreneurship. They love the idea generation. They love refining the idea, monetizing the idea and making it marketable, bringing together a team and, and getting a you know, product development and, and finding dis distribution of things. They love that game. Yeah. Then... Once it hits the market, it does become more of a business. Then you get pulled into the facets of management and hiring and firing and, you know, meeting. Levi couldn't make it to work. Levi couldn't make it to work this morning because his yeah. daughter's sick and his wife <laughs> right. is sick. And so now what do I do? Right? Yeah. How do I get this microphone and speaker system <laughs> to work? Which was, comes to mind here of our little <laughs> intrapreneurship venture yeah. of the Gordon Institute today. So, <laughs> so and, I, and I think that is, is probably the difference. And that's why you get these so-called serial entrepreneurs that you were just talking about during the break that love to start companies. They, but they don't like to manage them. Right. And so if you, if you do buy into a McDonald's franchise, it's kind of like buying a business, if you will, but you're straight into the debt and management of people and uh, contracts and everything else that comes along with owning a business but you don't get that fun part as much, right? That coming up with the idea and not knowing what's going to happen. That is something that serial entrepreneurs love to do. And you'll see them, they have this speculative model, if you will. And, and I didn't know this, our, our startup company was this way. And I didn't know it at the time. I thought it could be a career thing, but 
the owner wanted to start our company. He wanted to get patents, which we had. We had three or four patents. He wanted to get some sales, and he wanted to make the big guys in that particular industry nervous about us and that this is the new technology that was going to disrupt that particular industry. And that was our motto. It was uh, change an industry. And what he wanted to do then was do a deal and sell us off, right? Because he was a serial entrepreneur. He loved that start of the business, that the romance, if you will. Yeah. He want to manage it and grow it and the extra investment and partners that that may take. And so the speculative model said, okay, I'm going to get to this point. I'm going to protect my intellectual property with patents and other things, and then get the big guy on the block to buy us and sell us off. And then he would take that money and do it again. And that's what our company was. I didn't realize it. He had, he had made money on a combine harvester deal, no. sold it off for millions of dollars with John Deere. And then this company I was part of was part of this new uh, company that he was starting up. And that's what he loved to do. And that's okay. Uh, but I think that is a big difference between management and entrepreneurship that some people really enjoy. I know I like that front end, that, yeah. that creativity and, and coming up with ideas and will it work and doing research. When you get into the management side of it, it becomes more like a job. Yeah. Uh, now, hindsight 2020, what do you see as what made it not work, your 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 startup uh, what, what was the thing? Is there a thing or more so than other things or that? Yeah, the other guy. <laughs> yeah, that's a loaded question. Um, uh, I use it as a case study in my class, but there was really a number of things. One of the, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but one of the biggest things is it didn't really work that well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a, that is a, that can it, make things go it, south. Yeah, yeah, and this is a good example that I use in class. So what we would do, we would, our, our owner, the engineer was brilliant. He would come up with stuff and solutions to problems and he, he would make it work and he would, come back the next week with a solution and we'd try it in the lab, in the factory. It would work great. Then I was sales and marketing. So I'd take this thing out into the field and I would go to show a, a, a new customer and the thing wouldn't work. Uh -huh. So it was this, and we found a number of problems that was different from the field than it was in. Sure. Probably air temperature maybe comes to mind or something yeah. like that. You had perfect conditions. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and it was uh, other things like electrical for us. It was an elect it was oh. by electricity and we had 120 volts. And when you're on a job site, it turns out that they have temporary power right. until it's nearly finished. And then they come in with steady power and that was an issue. Huh. And so it, you know, field testing was one of our downfalls and, you know, that comes back to me a little bit and being a rookie, I, I needed to do more of that. Every time we thought we were ready, I'd go out into the field and we'd encounter a different problem. Right. Uh, and then what like the, the electrical, maybe you could overcome with the generator, but then the right. generator would start to rise, raise costs that maybe doesn't make it as competitive, <laughs> right? It gets yeah. real ugly. That's right. Yeah. And, and each time we came up with a solution, we'd have to change something else. And we kept going with this. Uh, problem-solving approach, but we, we ran out of money. Yeah. We could have got there, but we just didn't have deep enough pockets. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting constraint that other businesses fall into, too. Yeah. So a little off-topic, uh, Dr. Price, but what, what is your opinion on, do you think if acting entrepreneurial with a Christian value set, do you think that limits your, your chance of success? Because you might, 
for example, I don't know, take less shortcuts or be less inclined to take advantage of someone. So I, I was wondering if you could speak. Oh, to that. I know plenty of good Christians that find sin creeping into their decisions. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. There are no, there are no angels out there, but yeah. So I think it's a good, good question, Jacob. You know what? My, my take on that is that uh, I don't think it limits entrepreneurial success. In fact, I think the opposite, my position would be, I think it would help. And here's why if, and it depends on, you know, what you call, Christian value system and what you mean by that. But if, if you, for, for me, uh, that would mean things like trust. Yeah. Right. Uh, and if you're doing business, if you're in business and I, I think that's one of the most important values to have, you know, as you pointed out, everybody's different. You know, some people might call themselves a Christian and, and not be very nice in business. But if we do follow that system, Trust is critical for me because whether it's trust about what plans are, your intentions are, what it is, what you know, what you say you're going to do, and if you follow through, I feel if I can trust somebody, then I want to do business with them because there are moments in business where you just have to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Let me give you another example used in class two in China. There's this concept called, um, I think they pronounce it guanxi. And what this means is when you're doing business in that particular country and other countries as well, you, what is more important up front when you're doing business with someone is uh, trust and friendship, right? And so you need to establish that before you get into business. And so you might meet somebody and you'll spend an hour getting to know them before you even talk about business. Yeah. And, and that's because for years, if you don't have a sophisticated legal system like we do in the United States, right? If, if you have a problem with a company that didn't deliver on what they promised to do, you, you can, you know, take that matter, take it through the court system. There might be other regulatory bodies that you could approach or even a you know, chamber of commerce or whatever it is, you've got some sort of recourse. If you, if you take that away, if you're in a country or a culture that doesn't have that and you're on your own, then you need to have that trust before you do some sort of business transaction. Right. And so that's, that's an example of why it's so important. Yeah. And I, I, my mentor, when I was in real estate development, I sat in his office right, right from the get go basically because we were lacking office space, but it was so awesome because I listened to him talk to people and he was a multimillionaire and did lots of different businesses and real estate, mostly real estate developer but it was almost to me nauseating as a as a young economist to hear like the small talk you know it was always like yeah did you see the the game last night or what did you think of this or that or where are you from and well it sure has been warm out here and so anyway I, I but i really conversation after conversation after conversation i really started to see how important that was that yeah. all of my technical stuff that was in my head of how to you know, come to the solution or to make this deal work. I mean, I could have had it done in four minutes, right? Yeah. So you start the conversation and the meat of the conversation would have been done in four minutes. Yeah. But that 15 minutes of fluff yeah. was more important than the technical stuff because the technical stuff can actually come from multiple sources. So I think it's important for people to think that you're bringing something new to the table of that relationship and that trust factor needs to be built up first because there might be lots of technical people that can handle whatever it is. You're not that big of a genius with whatever it is. 
That's right, uh, and it's it's critical, especially with entrepreneurship. If you're you know getting into bed with somebody, if you will, if you're risking your whole you know whether it's your debt, if you've got your house in second mortgage, it's very very important to know who you're dealing with. Yeah, and so so you know those sort of values are important. Um, you know, I would go, I would take this a little bit further well, in conversation as far as the potential market uh, or faith-based marketing, right? In the United States, I looked at some numbers before I came in here, I forget what it was, but I think it was about 80% of Americans have some sort of religious affiliation. And I think it's about 50% of them say that religion is very important in their lives. Mm. So if you have a, a product that is targeted towards this particular group, you've got this automatic uh, target market, which you can you know, take advantage of where these people consume religious products. Yeah. And that's why it's important yeah. for religious people of whatever faith, but let's just take Christianity that don't just because a person has a Christian cross in their storefront do, you know, they're, they they might be trying to do that to convey its virtue signaling yeah. that, hey, I'm okay, and you're okay, and we're all in, you know, that then don't expect when you find out that person was a shyster later, yeah. uh, well, maybe there was a reason. So it's important for a little caveat emptor, a little buyer beware um, that we maintain our personal accountability and be aware that there could be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, for sure, yeah, and just because of the, the um, stats I, I mentioned, because there are, the information's out now, you know, cat's out of the bag, there's such a big market, and then people will buy, like I said, from Christian values, or they have uh, religious products, and just because they have that or say that doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> they share the same values necessarily. Right. So, so something that you mentioned that I thought that's, you know, pretty important is that we have a pretty strong government here in the sense that there's very well-defined property rights and there's a strong court system because I imagine it'd be pretty hard to be an entrepreneur absent of all that. So I was wondering, um, you know, between the United States or Australia, is there anything, because both of those countries have pretty strong governments, I yeah, would imagine. they're high on the economic um, freedom. You know, besides, besides the health, the universal health care you mentioned, is there anything here that maybe you think is a, you know, a glaring impediment to entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship? An impediment in the United States, apart from health care? You know, I, I did, you, nothing, nothing jumps out at me, Jacob. I mean, that's good. One of the best places in the world to have a go, you know? Yeah. Right. Land of opportunity. That, that, that seems to be a worldview, you know, in my mind, even though, yes, healthcare uh, is an issue and there's other costs as well, but still, I mean, it's a pretty good system, right, to, to have a go because, I mean, we're also talking about number of people in the United States, the market itself is... Uh, with the GDP, average income, those types of things uh, in the United States, it's a, it's a great place to get started. In Australia, most companies in the startup world think, okay, let's get started in Australia. Let's get a foothold. Oh, and then we'll go to the United States. Right? That's, where we actually, <laughs> right. that's where you can make all your money. So, you know, I, I don't see, I think in the United States tries to have protection. It has a nice balance between protecting entrepreneurs and consumers but you know also there's uh, it's it's not too constraining from a regulatory uh, perspective either 
Yeah. So really, it's it, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, and in general, it's it's opened up doors. The United States has really been on the forefront. Um, of course, many people might contest this, but there's some pretty good studies on uh, women in business. We went to a lecture at Emporia State that uh, moving west from the east, uh, women weren't treated equally, certainly in the, the early years of the United States, but entrepreneurs moved west and they started having, uh, what was it, garment factories or knitting and uh, yeah, cloth. sounds right. And anyway, one of the narratives was that they needed labor to make money and women were in the best position to, if they were looking for some more freedom, they were hiring them. And so women moved West. And so it was uh, different stories like that. I've got some other ones that we, we don't need to go into, but I, I think it's good for the listeners to hear that um, these open markets and the prosperity of the United States can lead to more liberation of minorities, more so than sometimes what we hear in popular media, that it is awful for minorities or unequal opportunities. And I, I, I think in general, I tend to, to lean. It's it certainly got its problems, but I think uh, a lot of evidence there that it has been pretty successful for a large lot of people. So Yeah, yeah, well, it, 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 it is because, and well, you know, we, we don't need to talk about immigration and other things, but they, they do come in and, and they do start businesses. Uh, they do, uh, you know, take, take a lot of jobs that um, other people won't take. And that's the good thing about the United States, as I said. I mean, there, there's so many different subcultures as well within the United States. Yes, there's people with money, but there are people who don't have a lot of money. And there, there are different races and ethnicities and there's different regions of the country and all these different types of buyers require different products and have different. Yeah. Which leads to more different opportunities because we are such a, a mix of, of people here in the great U S of a. So, all right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Price for joining us on the podcast today. And uh, to thank you. All right. Great. And uh, so on behalf of the Gordon Institute, uh, we appreciate you listening. And uh, if you subscribe on a podcast, just make yourself a regular subscriber. That'll help boost us in the ratings and keep you up to date on new episodes that come down the pipeline. And we've been at this for almost a year now. So I think it was October last year. So we come out weekly with episodes. So um, other than that, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. All right. Great job. Thank you. Thank you.